Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, so where are my seniors? Uh, we had a few seniors here. Raise your hand. Dude, like, okay. All right. I'm just making sure where you are you know, over here. Everybody's over here together. Well, good deal. Well, it is Senior Sunday, and so we're at the end of the service. Uh, what we're wanting to do is uh, commission these seniors through this transition uh, of life. And so today is a, a little bit of a different message. Uh, we're going to direct it mainly toward you, uh, but also I think it'll be something that uh, really would pertain to all of us. And we're going to be in First Chronicles chapter 28, not First Corinthians, First Chronicles. So this one's in the Old Testament. Uh, get that glossary out if you need it. No shame in that. First Chronicles chapter 28. And I'll get to that in just a second. But as we're turning there, um, maybe something that you heard today would prompt you. You're wondering how to get plugged in, uh, how to uh, uh, really answer God's invitation into serving. Uh, a really convenient way to do that is to use that uh, connection card right there in front of you. Uh, you can uh, check, hey, I'm willing to serve. Uh, I want some more information. Drop that in those offering boxes as you leave or stop by the Welcome Center. And if you're a first-time guest, all Always let us know you're here. Uh, if you're so inclined, we'd love to give you a free gift at the Welcome Center and just answer any questions that you may have. And then the second thing before we get into today's passage is this. Uh, we are in the month of May, which is uh, something that we always transition into a new month where we have a, a Force for Good initiative. And our Force for Good initiative for the month of May has everything to do with Foster Awareness Month. Uh, this is a time where uh, we want to come around foster parents and foster families that are answering the call to be on the front lines of helping children that are coming out of traumatic situations and really shepherding through a really difficult season of their lives. And so the way that we want to do that as a church is we want to come around there and provide some encouragement, some edification for them. And you can help with that in two ways. One way uh, is we're purchasing like $25 gift cards, individual gift cards for some restaurants or maybe some for some coffee or something like that. And next week, we're going to have a force for good area out in the foyer. We would love it if you would purchase a gift card uh, sometime over the course of the week or over the next month, because it'll be there next week for the entire month. And just drop that in the box that you'll see out there in our Force Forget area that'll be right across from the Welcome Center. Uh, and we'll collect those over the month of May, uh, and we'll distribute those uh, through uh, two organizations that we're partnering with. One is Arissa uh, Health, that deals uh, with uh, foster families and placement, and then also Connected Foster Care that does the same thing. Uh, and so we're going to partner with them, help them do what they do really well. And then the last thing is we're trying to save up money over the course of the month to really provide one specific day of encouragement and fun for all the foster families in Jonesboro. What we want to do is we want to rent out uh, a facility, either hijinks or the trampoline park or something like that. Uh, we want to collect funds over the month of May, and then we want to rent that out and invite all the foster families to come just for a time where they can have a good time at no cost to them, uh, just to say, we love you, we support you, and we're here from you. You can help with that by when you give uh, online or uh, through the offering envelopes at these black boxes. You can ch just check Go Further Missions on either of those places, and then we'll collect all those monies 
over the course of May, and every dime will go directly to that initiative for the month of May. Okay, so if you would, uh, as you make your plans for your budget, let's make plans together to be a blessing to uh, foster families uh, all around our community. Okay, a lot of stuff going on around here. Uh, today, we're going to be in First Chronicles uh, chapter 28, and the reason we are is because it speaks of transitions. Uh, obviously, seniors, you're going through a really big transition uh, coming out of high school into the next season, whether that means uh, uh, getting a job, moving into a profession getting some training or, or moving into college. Uh, I've always said doing college ministry for years that the, the years of that college age, which is, you know, coming out of 18 through 22, is probably the most formative and pivotal years of your life. It's a big transition. But it's really not just the only transition. I think uh, there was a feeling I had when I was in high school, like, well, hey, if I get through this next series of transitions, then it's going to kind of level out uh, and we'll kind of get to smoother waters and, and, and some of the big life questions will be answered. But what I've noticed is, is that life is just kind of an endless uh, array of transitions. Uh, and you've been through some transitions. Maybe uh, the graduation piece from high school was a long time ago, or maybe you're kind of looking to that into the future. But uh, maybe you've been through some other transitions. You've been through career changes. I think this past year, uh, maybe as a nation, we've gone through a lot of changes uh, as a, uh, just as a society, as human beings, gone through so many changes with COVID and all those kind of things. There's a lot of transitions that have happened for sometimes there's relational transitions. You're coming in or out of dating relationships, or maybe you're coming in or out of a marriage. Uh, and that's a really difficult transition. Maybe there's a birth that's happened in your family. You know, this is a, there's a new life here and it's in your hands. This is a whole new transition. You've moved to a new place. I mean, you moved to a new place. You tried out a new church. That's a transition. Uh, all kinds of things that we come in and out of. And here's the thing about transitions. If life is made up of a, a series of transitions, then what that means is that the proving ground of our faith will really be magnified and amplified through transitions. Uh, there's really nothing like a transition to magnify what's really in our hearts, what's really going on with us. And there's nothing like a transition to amplify what's really going on in our hearts and in our lives, and particularly in the arena of our faith. For some of us, faith uh, is one of those things that seems mystical. It seems really ethereal and hard to grasp, but really faith is played out on the proving ground of life. It's, it's really played out through all those transitions. And the reason I would say that is, uh, seniors, as you're going through a transition today, just know that there are some things with transitions that will be telling for your personal life, and they'll be formative for where you're going, because every transition is hard, every transition offers opportunities, and every transition really surfaces what I'm going to call the big three, the big three questions of life. Every transition that I've been through and I've walked with people through have really uh, uh, revealed three primary questions. The first question is a question of identity. It's going to be that big question that maybe you've asked uh, when you've gone through your transition. Well, who am I? Uh, you know, maybe the career change happens, you know, where you went through and you think, well, people would uh, ask you to introduce yourself and you tell them your name. And the first question is always out of, their out of their mouth after that is, well, what do you do? And you would tell them what you do. And now that's not what you do anymore. And so you're going through this question of who am I? I mean, parents, you know, as you uh, become empty nesters and you've been a parent, you've invested, you know, 20 or so years of, of blood, sweat and tears into these little ones. I mean, you've had the sleepless nights. You've uh, tried to balance the checkbook and all those kind of things to keep people paid for and all the supplies that people need and all their things cared for. And now you're moving into a new season and you're asking the question, well, who am I 
who am I now? And then high school students, as you move out of graduation and out of high school and you were in this club and this, uh, you were playing this sport, this was your position, you, uh, you know, everybody knew you in a certain light and now you're going onto a new campus, a new job, a new arena, and you're going to ask the question, well, who am I? This is an identity question and this is one of the basic big three questions of life that everybody at some point has to answer, and there's no bigger time to ask the question and look for the answer to the question than in a point of transition. But that's not the only question. The identity question actually leads to another big question, and that's the question of direction. This is the question, what should I do? Uh, I know when I went into college, the question really is like everybody started asking the question, you know, like, well, what, what's your major going to be? What are you going to major in? And then college students, you can attest to this, right? Like that's the first thing they ask you. They don't ask you what your job is. They say, well, what's your major? Where are you from? And if you've gone through two or three of those, you've had to change your answer a few times, you know, uh, and your parents are like, hey, would you get an answer and stick with the answer? All right. We're three or four years into this thing. We need an answer from you. You're asking the question, what should I do? I mean, you've been told your whole life, there's just, you can do anything you want to do. There's this endless array of opportunities out there, but to narrow all that down, like, what should I do? What should I do in this relationship? Where should I live? Where should I go to college? Should I not go to college? Should I get a job? Should I live at home? Should I not live at home? On and on and on. Every transition, though not just the high school to college one, but every transition is a new sense, a new set of directional questions where you're going to ask the question, what should I do? And behind the identity question and behind the direction question, I think is the third big of, of the big three, and that's the motivation question. And this is really the thing that ties the whole thing together. This is the question of what will I live for? This is kind of the energy source, if you will. This is the fuel in the tank. This is the battery power. Uh, this is the place that you live out of. This is the place that oftentimes people lose at some point in their life when they, uh, they don't have anything that gets them out of bed in the morning. They don't have the thing that says, oh, this is what I'm for. This is the big purpose in life. This is where I find meaning. This is where I find motivation. And you don't have to be older or you don't have to be younger to this experience. This is an equal opportunity question. What will I live for? And if you don't answer that question or the other two questions, you will waste years, you will lose faith, and oftentimes you'll miss God's plan for your life. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because God has sent Jesus Christ into our lives. He sent Jesus Christ onto this planet to help us to rescue us from our sinful and selfish desires, to actually help us to answer these big three questions and to find our identity, our direction, and our motivation all wrapped up in him. And this is not a story that just arrives on the scene in the New Testament. This has been God's story from the very beginning. And just as we've done, we've been looking through a series of stories and been dropping in through God's story through uh, some significant individuals uh, through time. Today, we're going to do the same, and we're going to look at uh, probably the biggest transition to date uh, for the nation of Israel as King David is passing away, and he is passing the throne to his successor. And in chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles, it tells us the story, recounts the events of this epic moment, this big ceremony where the whole nation comes together and they look to the future because every transition involves a death and involves a birth. And that's why they're so difficult. 
And I want to set the scene with you in First Chronicles 28, and we're going to look primarily at the last three verses, or actually the last two verses of this, but I want to set the scene and set the, uh, the epic backdrop for verses 9 and 10 that will give us direction how to answer these three questions. So let's, let's set the scene together, First Chronicles 28. David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem the officers over the tribes, the commanders and the divisions in the services of the king, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors and all the brave fighting men. Now, this is an epic day. I mean, this is the day if I Everybody is there. Anybody of any kind of uh, leadership, any kind of prowess, any kind of position, David has called everybody together. He put pushed pause on everything going on in the country. And he says, I want everybody here on this particular day. I want everybody present. I want everybody tuned in. I want everybody listening. And if you can imagine the closest thing I can imagine, I don't know if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings, but there's this kind of the, at the end of Return of the King, uh, for some of you nerds out there like me, uh, when uh, the king returns and everybody's there and there's just the, the hobbits are there. Everybody's there. It's just this sea of people out there where the whole nation comes around the coronation of a king. This is the moment the nation has been waiting for. This is when the questions of life get answered. And the reason the questions are being asked is because David's life is failing. It's a death, but with the death, there's also going to be a birth. And everyone is asking these questions personally. Everyone is asking these questions as a nation. What is going to happen? Who are we? without David here? What direction will we go? What will be our motivation for the future? And so with that as the backdrop, watch how the story plays out as we begin to get focused more and more closely in on one individual. King David rose to his feet and he said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place for the rest uh, of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Goes on to say in verse four, yet the Lord, the God of Israel chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. You chose Judah as a leader and from the tribe of Judah, he chose my family and from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And then he goes on to say this in verse five and following of all my sons and the Lord has given me many. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord of Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. And then finishing up the scene in verse 8. So now I charge you in the sight of all of Israel and the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord, your God, that you may possess the good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. This is indeed an epic day as, as David gives this charge to the entire nation of Israel and all the leaders out there, he calls them back to the commands of the Lord. He recounts the ark of the Lord. He recounts his plans, but knowing that God has not called him to fulfill the plans, but to pass the baton on to his successor, his son, Solomon. 
And in that sea, if you can imagine for a second, I mean, it's one thing to see the sea, but imagine as the story gets told, it comes closer and closer. It zeroes in on one individual. And the individual that gets zeroed in, in on is Solomon, his son. And in the same way that David gives a charge to the entire nation, he turns to the next leader. And in his death, his impending death, he looks to the birth of a new reign, the birth of a new opportunity, the birth of a new season, and he begins to give him a charge as well. And this is where we want to hang out because I believe it helps us to answer the questions from a perspective of the Lord of where he wants to direct us and guide us when we go through our transitions. Watch what happens in verse 9. First Chronicles 28, 9 says this, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. Now, these are the first words to the incoming king. Matter of fact, if you narrow it down and say, what is the first word David spoke to Solomon? It's the word acknowledge. Now, think about that for a second. I mean, uh, all the pomp and circumstance, all the ceremony, everything was kind of built up to this climax of this moment. He's spoken now to the nation, but he's turning to one individual in the sea of people. And he chooses to speak a singular word to Solomon that actually begins to set the tone to help him with this birth of this new opportunity, this question that Solomon's obviously going to be asking, well, who am I? What should I do? Where am I going? These, all these big three questions are embedded in this moment and they're magnified and they're amplified. And so in that moment, he says of all the words he could choose, he uses the word acknowledge. Now the word acknowledge is a, is a pretty common word, but really in order to understand the significance of why David would choose this word, I believe that there's two aspects of it that are really potent and powerful, powerful for us. When you think of the word acknowledge, really we're going to look at two specific aspects of it. it. It involves knowing and it involves glorifying, knowing and glorifying. When you think about the transition, uh, the transition thrust upon Solomon to ask this fundamental question of his life that only he could answer. Effectively, what this is saying from David's words to Solomon is no longer can you live off my faith. No longer can you follow my decisions. No longer can you respond to my leadership. Today, it's in your hands. It's about what do you know, or more appropriately, not what, but who do you know? Do you know the Lord yourself? You know, I think graduation, moving into college, what I've seen through the years is there is an aspect of that where it either happens in these years or frequently it doesn't happen, where individuals come out of uh, either a heritage of faith or kind of a, a place of nominal faith or a, a household of a lack of faith. And they come in and they're forced to answer the question, well, what about my faith? And how you answer that question or fail to answer that question has all kinds of devastating or um, favorable uh, ramifications on your future. It, it, it really is no longer dependent upon what your parents believe. Because some of you probably came out of um, 
households where faith was really integral to your, your life. I mean, your, your family prayed together. Maybe you went to church together. You read the Bible together. Uh, you were brought up in the faith. You, you put your faith and trust at an early age or somewhere along the way. And you just knew that you wanted to take that investment and you wanted to carry that legacy forward. And that's your story. But some of you in here, that's not your story at all. Some of you came out of uh, places and out of heritage that, I mean, faith was talked about. It was somewhat nominal. Uh, it was there, but you wouldn't say it was really integral. It wasn't one of those things where like, hey, we really use that as kind of the framework of our worldview and how we want to approach life. Uh, we talked about it, but I wouldn't say that it was uh, on the top 10 list. I mean, maybe it was like five or six or four or three, somewhere in the middle of that, but it wasn't, wasn't paramount to us. But some of you would say, Quite honestly, you'd say, well, listen, uh, coming out of my faith heritage, uh, it's not something I want to run to. It's not something I want to pass along. It's actually something I want to run, run away, away from. It's actually something I want to create a different future for. And no matter where you find yourself in that, because we're all somewhere in that spectrum, right? It really is the same question, no matter what you've come out of. It's the question, well, what will you do with faith? What will your relationship with the Lord look like? Because it doesn't matter if uh, your parents and grandparents had a lot of faith or a little faith. It really, there's nothing like a transition of the passing of a ton of life to say, hey, what about your faith? What's it going to mean to you? And in order to answer that question, you have to know where faith begins. If you, if you want to figure it out, if it can't just be your parents' faith, in this case, it couldn't just be David's faith. It had to be Solomon's faith. Then where do you begin? Well, for us, we know that the person and the place that we begin with is Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is both the source of our knowing the Father, and he's actually the model of how we know him. Uh, a good example of that is in John chapter 8, verse 14. This is an encounter Jesus had with some Pharisees, and he said this, uh, and some other individuals, he said, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. Now think about this. This is Jesus. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh. But here's the thing that he illustrates for us that helps us to understand how do we answer the question of where do we begin knowing God? It begins with that identity question. It's the identity question. When you know who you are, then the natural response of that is confidence. Like no one can challenge that. Uh, I think during the, the early adulthood years, there, there's just this heightened sense that everyone's vying to kind of uh, tell you who you are. Uh, you're trying to ask the question, well, who am I? Am I going to fit in this crowd or that crowd? Am I going to go this direction or that direction? And we begin to paste, kind of copy and paste, if you will, other people's identities onto us. And we begin to take this and take that. And there's never been more options than there are today. I mean, uh, no longer is it just kind of restricted to the people you immediately face to face know now. I mean, there's all kinds of identities out there that you can begin to copy and paste onto yourself and say, well, maybe this is who I am. But for us, what we understand is that the creator of all things, Jesus himself said, hey, I know where I've come from. And because I know where I've come from, I also know where I'm going. And for us, what we understand is the most powerful thing that we can know in, our, in relationship to our identity is to know who we are. And the only way to answer the question of who we are is to know 
whose we are. The one that created us, the one that fashioned us, the one that formed us. And when we are, we are tempted to copy and paste identities onto ourselves. It's just to realize, God, who have you made me to be? You see, even in Jesus's interaction with others, when they were trying to challenge who he was, they could not shatter the understanding that I know where I've come from. Where did he come from? He came from, uh, from the eternal Godhead himself, the blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He existed in eternity. It is uh, unassailable of who he is. And wouldn't it be great if we could just begin to embrace a little bit of the confidence that comes from knowing that God, that person, Jesus. And what happens subsequently when we have the confidence of our identity, it provides us clarity with direction. I mean, you're going to ask the question. You're going to, seniors, you're going to ask tons of questions in the next few weeks. I mean, even like those of you that are going to uh, be in a dorm room, you know, you're trying like, well, are we going to have matching comforters or are we not? Like, I mean, there's a ton of different, a uh, ton of different questions. Some of you have already answered those questions. Betsy, I know you've already answered that question because I saw you at Home Goods. okay? Um, there's a lot of questions, a lot of deep, deep questions to life. But the only way to find true direction is to first know identity. And if you can embrace the knowledge of who you are, much like Solomon on that day, when all the expectation was there and the questions of who am I? Well, I'm not David. I'm not my father. Who am I going to be? What is the source for that? The source for that is God himself. God is his source and God is our source. And so from that, that's part of it, right? Part of it is knowing, but the other part is glorifying. Matter of fact, in that same passage in John chapter eight, watch if you skim down to verse 54, watch this thing that kind of pops off the page and Jesus replied to these individuals. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. They were really telling Jesus, hey, you're trying to glorify yourself. You're trying to elevate yourself. And Jesus said, well, I'm not trying to do that. My father's the one who glorifies me. But here's the thing is I'm not trying to glorify myself. My glory, if I do that, means nothing. Now, what is glory? Because that sounds like a really churchy word, right? But Jesus used it. So what does it mean? Well, the glory root word of that is weight. Okay. It means something weighty. The word glory actually means weight. Uh, it speaks of permanence. It's something that's immovable. It's much like when Jesus would say at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, wise is the man who builds his house uh, on the rock, right? Uh, that's weight. That's something permanent, not on the shifting sands of things. But here's the thing about life is there's always something challenging us for glory. Glory is actually motivation. So if knowing is about uh, identity and direction, glory is about what do I live for? And what Jesus is saying essentially in this passage is, I'm not living for my own glory. As a matter of fact, if I do that, it actually means nothing. And the world continually, uh, at different seasons of our life, presents us and tempts us to glorify in other things. And there are really things that are misplaced worship, misplaced glory. I mean, some people, the kind of the drug of choice for uh, glory as an anchor for their life is, is really uh, success. 
I mean, it's the, I, mean, I just want to succeed. Uh, maybe I want to go to college or I want to get into a profession or I want to start my career out. Or maybe it's a relationship thing where I, I really want to give myself into this relationship. And if I could have this relationship, everything will work out great. For some of us, it's security. I just want, to, I just want stability. Uh, if I could have stability, everything would be great. I would feel comfortable. My motivation is stability. It doesn't matter if it's success. It doesn't matter if it's stability uh, or security. It doesn't matter if it's a relationship. If the motivation at its root is not living for God himself, then much like Jesus says, if I try to pursue my own glory, then it actually means nothing. It's much like what Jesus said, that if we give ourselves to him, if we, don't, uh, if we try to gain our life, we'll actually lose our life, right? Uh, but if we actually lose our life for him, then we actually gain life. He, he tells us there's a transaction and a transition for us. And then if we choose to glorify and make Jesus and his way and his personhood our primary concern in every situation, it will actually begin to provide clarity. It'll actually become the thing that as you go through the seasons of transitions will become a stabilizing anchor in your life. So whether you go to this college or that college, whether or not you have this job or that job, or you move from this relationship to that relationship or this place to that place, there's a constant. And the constant is, why do I live? What am I pursuing? And you can do that in every scenario. And it can become a constant for you. And so if glorifying is that, then how does that provide us direction? Well, uh, one of the most um, probably... Something, uh, graduates, you probably get on a card. If not, you can go to, again, Home Goods. I don't know why I'm talking about Home Goods. Or uh, let's see, where else we go? Hobby Lobby. And you can probably get a plaque uh, with this on there. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That means that the constant is not which path, but whether or not you will know and glorify the Lord with whichever choice you make. You know that I think that God is less concerned about the choice that you make than he is with the person that you're becoming. The most powerful thing that you can do to find direction is become the type of person that makes really good decisions. It, a lot of times we get so, uh, we, we scrutinize over all the options. We make pros and con lists for things. And what God would say is, listen, all that stuff's good. There's wisdom in all those things. But at the end of the day, what's most important when making decisions about life, going through transitions, is not the decisions themselves, but it is the motivation behind the decision that will actually shape you into the type of person that will make the best decisions over a long period of time. And so what I can do is I can say, okay, what is my motivation for why I want to do any of these options that are out there? Because there's always inside us a turmoil that's going on. There's always a dissection. There's always uh, some fractures of our devotions of why are we really wanting certain things in our life? We've all seen this at different points in our life. Why do I really want that relationship? Why do I really want that job? Why do I really want to live there? And if we can go past the decision and we can dive deeper, we'll find what our motivation is. And that's exactly why I think what David directed Solomon to in the next part of his charge was simply that, to serve him with a wholehearted devotion, to give all of ourselves to God. Now, let's just be honest. This is hyperbolic language. 
none of us, I would say, we, we use terminology like, I want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. I want to have wholehearted devotion. Uh, and I would say, yes, we always want to voice that. That's our motivation. But the reality, once again, with proving ground is it's not about our faithfulness to God, but that he, even through our unfaithfulness, he's faithful to us. And so we want to serve him with a wholehearted devotion. But the human part of us, the broken, sinful part of us, recognizes that there is two things going on. There's a war going on with me and inside you. Very rarely do I have a wholehearted devotion. I have a fractured one. I have a divided devotion. And I think that's why I love scripture so much is because some people would say that the church is uh, full of people just faking it. You know, they're just kind of acting like everything's okay. But that's not the picture you get of scripture if you really read it. One of the best places to see that, I think, is when you just get the transparency and the rawness of the people that wrote the Psalms. And one of the best places that I know to see it is in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, this is what the psalmist said. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I highlighted my anxious thoughts because I do think that there's an epidemic of anxiety today. Some of that, I mean, there's all kinds of things for that. And sometimes we'd like to deny that and act like that's not there. But here's the thing is that part of the human condition is this divisiveness within us internally. And when we experience that kind of divided soul, when there are things going on in us that um, seem to pull us in different directions, the result of that is uh, anxious thoughts. And those things, when left to themselves, they, they carry a natural course. That's why many of us deal with really deep anxiety and we need help. I mean, I'm so thankful that the, the Lord has given us great doctors and therapists and counselors and pastors and friends and family. And I think the reality is that we need all the resources to deal with anxiety on every different level. But at its root, it is a part of the human condition that says that there is a dividedness to life. There is stress. There is anxiety with knowing which way to go. And the psalmist so long ago, he, he spoke to God and he said, hey, listen, Lord, I need you to look and know my heart. I'm going to be honest with where I really am. Will you test me? Because I, I, I don't know what to do. Will you know my anxious thoughts? I need to be honest about this stress that's going on. And I want you to see, God, is there any offensive way in me? God, what is my motivation for these things? And Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, if there's any motivation that's not to glorify you, would you now lead me in the way everlasting? Would you take away the other things and would you point me in the direction that is your way for my life? I mean, this is a go-to posture for us as believers. I mean, if you're not a believer in here today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, this, is, this in itself is an invitation to say, Lord, when I meet you at the transition, when I'm divided in my heart, I can come before you and I can ask you, God, to know my heart. Test me. Know me. Help me, God. Point me in the right direction. And the beauty of that is, is through the gospel, God provides direction for us. And he always does it through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said it best. Um, we're going through the, the list of famous verses today. Uh, he said it best in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, when he said, I've been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, 
Paul had this unique vantage point by putting his faith and trust in Christ. He said that I've actually died. The old me died. And now that I've gone through death in this transition, that is essentially a death and a birth. If I've already died to myself once, and if now I'm living for Christ, that means through the transition, I've already experienced a death and a birth that will sustain me because now I know that wherever I go, whether or not it's the highlands, or whether or not it's the heartache, whether or not it's the peak of a mountain or a valley, whether I move here or there, whether the relationship doesn't last or it does, through all of that stuff, I'm going to live for Christ in every situation. And in order to do that, we have to have what what he calls in the next part of the verse, a willing mind, a willing mind. That's what he says in 1 Chronicles 28, 9. He says, a wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. Sometimes Christianity is, uh, gets a knock, and I've said this recently, I think, that sometimes it's, it's like, well, that's not really for thinking people, right? Faith is not for thinking people. Again, that's not uh, the kind of faith we ascribe to here. Uh, it's not what we talk about. I mean, God gave us our minds, and we end our services every week with the fact that we're supposed to love God with all of our mind, our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our minds are precious to us. God created us to be learners. I mean, I I believe that people in faith should be in every profession. No matter what you are called to do, you should be there and you should use your brain and your faculties to continue to image God in every arena of our society, in every arena of life. I mean, that's why God's given you this brain. But you have to have a willing mind, not just a mind. What is a willing mind? Well, a willing mind says, it really kind of embodies two things. One, it embodies humility and, it, and receptivity. It's saying, God, I'm humble. I don't think I have all the answers. And what I need from you is I need your thoughts. I need you to reveal to me the way. Um, that's exactly what you get in Solomon's story, as a matter of fact. Matter of fact, if you move from the ceremony to uh, kind of the private, like the bedroom or scene or whatever, when you move away to the private scene that night, uh, away from all the pomp and the circumstance, all the stuff, when all the eyes are on him, when it's just him alone, you actually get a picture of what a willing mind looks like in the moment. Uh, you can fast forward, Second Chronicles chapter one, and you get the next scene. That night, God appeared to Solomon and he said to him, ask whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father, David, be confirmed for you have made me king over people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for whom, uh, for who is able to govern this great people of yours. This is when all the eyes are off of him. But imagine when he's recounting this, you see it, right? Because he's looking out and he's reimagining what he saw. I looked out there and it was like people as far as I could see. And as the responsibility came crashing down on him, the weight of who am I? What should I do? What am I going to live for? And he was alone. What was the first thing that he asked God for? God, I, I don't know what to do. What is your way to lead these people? After all, they are yours. There is a humility. There is a receptivity to that. And and in order for us to be formed as individuals, for in order for us to be formed as a church, there's always has to be a posture of humility. A a posture of humility to what? Well, what God has said. 
what God has revealed. To be people that come underneath God's word, what he's revealed for us to be and to do. To say, God, we are going to humble ourselves before you. We're going to learn your word. We're going to begin to filter our futures through what you have said because we need your wisdom. Now, you can't take out student loans for that. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's good because there's a lot of student loans going around, but it always does cost something. Matter of fact, the writer of Proverbs actually said it best. He says it this way, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Understanding is really know why you need to do it. And God has revealed himself to us so that we could know the mind and the heart of God So that at the core of things, we don't just have to go through and say, hey, what's the next decision? What should I do? What should I do? Go through the transitions. But we can actually know God himself, who is the beginning of wisdom. The writer would actually say in other places, he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's to understand that we are living inside the story of God. We're not creating our own stories. We're not creating our own futures. We're walking with God through his And so our decisions, our ability to choose, God's endowed us with the ability to choose within the parameters of his great creation to become partners with him as we walk through life. And so our decisions are powerful. Our decisions matter. And so if they matter so much, if we are to image God within his creation, then we always have to go back to the source and it can become a constant for us. And if it costs you everything, whether or not you gotta take out that student loan or whatever, You better get wisdom. You better get understanding. And at the end of the day, there's one source for that. It's his word. It's who he is. And as we follow and we take on his wisdom, then we're we're empowered to live for him in every arena of our life, through every transition. And that's why I believe he ends with this succinct, deliberate charge in verse 10. He says, if that's what you want, if you want wisdom, if you want him, If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. I think it was important for Solomon to hear uh, that he was chosen by God. It was obvious that God had chosen David to do certain things. And if you read the story, it was obvious that God did not choose him Uh, to build the temple for him. And that's a whole other sermon for another day. But when David gets to the point, he, I think he says this for two reasons. I think he says that Solomon has been chosen so that everyone could hear it. But then he also said it specifically so Solomon would hear it, that God has given you a purpose. And I don't think that this is unique in my reading of scripture to Solomon. Solomon would prove to be a flawed and failed individual he would commit egregious sins against God. And so God doesn't choose an individual, men and women, because of how great they are. He chooses them in spite of their unfaithfulness to display his faithfulness through them. He chooses broken people to be a part of his kingdom initiative, to be a part of his story. Matter of fact, Paul would say it in Ephesians chapter two, verse nine. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That means that all of us have been chosen 
to be a part of God's story. And much like Solomon heard that day from his father, I think the father would want to speak to each of us. And I think he would want to say to you, he has chosen you. For what? I'm not exactly sure. But here's the thing I know. I know that if you pursue him, if you seek him, he reveals his way because his way is wrapped up in who he is. He wants you to know him, to be found in him. He wants you to know that you're chosen. And then he goes on to say, doesn't he? He says, be strong and do the work. You know, when I was uh, starting out, uh, coming out of high school and uh, coming out of college, even in my early 20s, I can remember being really uh, impressed when people would start big things. Uh, We were in our 20s and there would be, uh, you know, some of our friends, they would get that new job at that big firm or, you know, they'd get a job and some of them would be in ministry and other things. Some of them would say, I'm going to go move to somewhere. And I was always like, man, I wish I wish I could do something like that. You know, I'll be really impressed when people would start things. And the older I've got, though, the more I'm not as impressed. I'm still impressed when people have enough courage to start something. But what I'm really impressed by the older I get is not how much people start or how well they start. Not a bold initiative or a new endeavor. But I think strength is revealed over time through perseverance. And I'm more impressed now, the older I get, I guess, with not how people start, but how people finish. And I've experienced this where, you know, as you get older, you get a little bit more tired, you get a little bit more fatigued and it takes perseverance. And I think that's why so much of faith that you see the people that are honest about it, even writers of scripture, they're saying, hey, listen, it takes a lot of work to be strong means to persevere and perseverance has its work in you. And so strength is built through activity. It's built through work. At the end of the day, What did uh, David say? What was his final word to his son Solomon at the coronation, at the ceremony? He said, you're just going to have to do the work. It's the same thing when you're working with somebody. You just wish, man, just show up. Showing up is half of it. If you're an employer, you want somebody that just shows up. Man, just show up. Just show up. Good things happen when you show up. And to show up over a period of time in life means that you'll go through into a transition and out of a transition, into a transition, out of transition. But if you will follow Christ through all those, then what he says, if you show up, he'll show up. He's going to show up in your story over and over again, because that is the faithfulness of God. And so you might want to tuck that away in your back pocket as you go into the next transition, or maybe you're in the middle of one right now. Or maybe you're, gonna, you're coming out of one and you're like, man, I wish I would have been reminded of that and you're trying to take a deep breath. Know this, that Christ wants all of us to know him, to find our sufficiency in him, and you could know that.